Welcome, everybody, to the class in Santa Cruz. We have the privilege tonight of having Ajahn Kanasanti with us. And before we start, I'd like to just tell you a little bit about her. She is a California native, and she even went to UC Santa Cruz. So really, we could almost call her a local girl, but I guess that's not exactly proper. But in any case, she learned first about Buddhism in a class at UC Santa Cruz, which sounds really interesting. She completed a BA in biology and uh, worked for a few years as an analytical chemist, and in 1987 went on pilgrimage to India, Nepal, and Thailand to meet many of the meditation masters that she had heard about. In 1889, <laughs> no, that's way too long ago. She's a lot older than she looks. That's a problem of trying to read and talk at the same time. In 1989, she joined Amravati Monastery in England as part of the community of nuns and was ordained in 1991. So for many years, Ajahn Tanasanti was involved in the leadership team and guidance of the nuns community at Chithurst. And since uh, 1996, she's been teaching intensive meditation retreats throughout the world, especially in the U.S., U.K., and Australia. So things have changed recently. In order to pursue her vision of how monastic and lay practitioners can work together in the postmodern world to create a viable community for practice, she's taken a very significant step in letting go of the formal affiliations with Amaravati and associated monastic communities. She's been living on faith according to the ancient principle of alms mendicancy. She's based in Colorado Springs, but would like to move to California. That would be wonderful for us. Uh, To establish a training monastery and community to pursue her vision of monastic and lay practitioners working together. Her interests are in awakening compassion and wisdom to integrate insight and the whole human condition. She uses essential Buddhist and non-dual teachings, devotional practices, and respect for nature as skillful means. So I hope you join with me in welcoming Ajahn Tamasanti. Thank you. Thank you, John. So we can uh, sit quietly for uh, a period of time, maybe about 40 minutes, and then continue. tell you, it's just lovely to be back to Santa Cruz. You know, I was born in L.A., and when I left, when I came back, it never felt like I was coming home. Never. But when I come back to Santa Cruz, it's a very different feeling. I spent, I don't know how many years here, but a number of, of years here, and they were very formative years, obviously. It was when I was first introduced to Buddhism and meditation, and it was a um, tremendously transformative and powerful time on many, many levels. And I love it. You know, I love the place. So, uh, 30 years ago, it's like not a blink of an eye, but you know, there's still something very sweet about coming back here. So, thank you for being so welcoming. It's nice. And it's also 
I mean, I, you know, the memories, it's just, you know, when I was practicing here, there was no such thing as Vipassana Santa Cruz. You know, there were two or three of us, we'd sit in each other's houses and we'd share gossip of which retreats were happening when and who was doing what where. And, you know, it was very, very small. And then when Mary, Mary Grace started teaching, and all of a sudden started to flourish. And then I, I watched this whole thing kind of expand and grow and uh, find a place and settle. So I heard kind of from the grapevine how things were going. It's always been a delight for me to see the, the way this community has flourished. So I'm happy. When I uh, start a formal talk, I start with this chanting, and this is part of the forest tradition, and it's a, it's a signal. It's, a, it's an indication for everybody here to listen in a very particular way. So this is not just chit-chat, you know, or this is not just kind of street gossip. This is a, an opportunity to reflect on the Dhamma. And so the signaling is, is to begin to allow your attention to go inward. So in the same way when sitting, one sets up a posture and actually attends in a particular way. When listening to a Dhamma talk, there's a similar kind of instruction where, you know, one's meant to be upright and relaxed and listen inwardly. So 90% of your attention is actually meant to be on an inner relationship with your inner response. And when you do that, then when you hear something that's true, you know because your chest relaxes, your shoulders relax, your, your breath elongates and softens. There's a kind of somatic aha, and you feel it. And if you hear something that doesn't resonate, you know, you don't have that somatic response, and you just let it go. But whenever somebody is in this position of teaching, or at least I make this invitation, you know, I don't plan my talks. I speak extemporaneously. And it's inevitable because I'm a practitioner as well that you know there'll be times when I when I when I go off and so rather than speaking just speaking purely from a perspective of dharma there can be places where my own material comes in in a way that's not helpful and if I am ever speaking in a way that goes against your deepest understanding of what the truth is then I would like to request not just to ignore it or let it go but to somehow find a way to come back to me about it now, obviously, while I'm talking might not be the best time. <laughs> but hopefully there may be some time when you can come and find me or speak to me or send me an email, somehow get through to me. Because in this way, what we do is we create a sacred relationship where we are all here with the intention of waking up. And it's my intention to speak in a way that supports that but I can't do that by myself. I need your commitment to support me in doing that. So in that way, what happens is, is that even though you hear my voice, and I'm the only one apparently talking, ideally there is a perfect dialogue happening with each person. Because each of you are in relationship with your own sense of your relationship with the truth as you are listening. And that is the right way to listen in a context like this. So I wanted to talk about um, the edges of where meditation doesn't reach. And I want to speak about it from my own personal experience and some of the things that I've had to deal with. So, you know, I came to meditation when I was 17. And I remember being in the class at the university. I think we were in Stevenson. It might even have been room 117. I mean, I'd have to go back and check it out. You know, so, you know, 17-year-old people have a few things to sort out most of the time. And I remember sitting in the lecture hall and feeling this sense of, like, um, my whole system was, like, alighted, kindled, on flame, you know, it's not so much the case, maybe in the Santa Cruz in the summertime when it gets really, really dry and everything is very, there's a, you know, there's a lot of fire dangers. You know, if you take a, a pile of twigs and brush and stuff like that and let it dry out over a whole summer where there's very little fog, you know, <coughs> pour kerosene on it and just throw a match on it, you know, what happens? It's like, well, that was my experience of being in the class. You know, it was just, I, I just was sitting in a lecture, in a lecture theater and that's what my experience was. And so from one week being into that class, I had a really strong sense that this spiritual life was the focus of my life. 
And after one month of being in the class, I had a vision of being a nun. And that vision kept coming back to me over the ten years it took for me actually to come to the monastery. And so it's like, on some level, like the aspiration to live as a nun was present from the very beginning. Now, what I... I mean, it's taken me decades to see some of the motivations that I came into all of this stuff with, but having seen them now, it's, it's interesting to speak about them. I think many of us have a very strong longing for magic wands. I mean, fairy godmothers and magic wands, like, really feature really strongly, you know? And when I came in contact with the Dhamma, on some level, it was my magic wand. It was going to be the thing that was going to sort everything out, and if I practiced hard enough and, and was diligent enough and had enough whatevers to realize enough of the fruits of the practice, it was going to sort out everything. And so there was a sense of, well, that was like the kind of way that I gave myself to the practice, wholeheartedly and with this assumption that I was going to get enlightened, I wasn't going to suffer, and everyone was going to love me. And it took years for me to even see that that was actually my motivation, you know? It's like I didn't even see it. So, ten years of rich life and living and relationship and work and all the rest of that, and I ended up going to the monastery. Now, gratefully, I didn't go to the monastery with this fairy tale fantasy of the monastery being a wonderful place. People have this idea monasteries are wonderful places. They're very peaceful, and everybody there is incredibly wise and kind and loving. And I'm afraid I have some bad news. (laughs) There are people who live in monasteries, and by definition, people have with them whatever kind of issues that they bring into the monastery. And so every single thing that you are struggling with in your life Most of them will show up in the monastery. And part of the reason why that's the case is because the problem is not out there. It's actually in here. And so all of the people that one has ever had a hard time with, they're all in the monastery. (laughs) Every single one of them. I can absolutely guarantee it. Okay? And so it's a really interesting thing what happens in trying to work out all this stuff in a context of being in a celibate community with an enormous amount of restraint and people who live with each other for decades. You know, some of the sisters have been living together for decades. So in my own personal journey, I have had to um, kind of use this almost brutal honesty and self self-disclosure about some of my own motivations and some of my own issues. And it took a lot it took a lot of humility for me to realize that part of my interest in meditating and my absolute conviction and wholehearted dedication was in my own personal psychology and unwillingness to bear with some of the pain that I was experiencing. And a hope that if I just meditated hard enough, that that would be the thing that would sort it out for me. And, you know, I I, I don't usually do things by halves. So when I was committed, you know, it was really very, very strong determination. But, you know, after 20 years of meditating, I was still miserable as sin. And I thought, well, something is actually not right. (laughs) You know, what is not right? It's obviously not the fact that I'm not... My determination and commitment and sincerity and aspiration, that's not the problem. That is not where the problem, I don't need to do more of that. And so I needed to back off and look from another perspective and see what it was that I needed to explore and from a different angle. And in doing that, I found out that, well, first of all, with meditation, meditation works with things that one is aware of. It's not so good with things that one is not aware of. And so there's all kinds of issues that come in terms of psychology that one is not aware of. And yet they are operating through uh, one's own mind and body systems. So that's one thing. One of the things where that operates is is in cultural biases. Okay, So we don't see our own cultural biases and meditation doesn't illuminate that. And it, it, it doesn't work on that level. It works on another level. So for, my, for myself, 
there was quite um, quite interesting journeys that I had to navigate. And you know, part of what was happening was is, is that what was arising for me in the community was such that you know I didn't have the freedom to explore it and, and come to uh, a sense of resolution with it in the community. And so. There was a period of time where I left Amravati and Chitterst and I went and lived in the bush in Australia for uh, a number of years. So I was in a forest hermitage in, in Australia and in a national park. And I'd never been to Australia before. And I'd never, I mean, I've always been somebody who had, I self identified as somebody who loved nature. But, you know, nature is something that you go into and then come back into your nice little house with a, with, you know, with, with, conveniences and, and easy access and all the rest of that. And we were living in a place that was uh, two and a half hours away from from anywhere. It took 40 minutes on this incredibly rough road that sort of separated your ligaments from your, from your joints. <laughs> the last journey to get into this place. And there was only one car that would go in and out regularly once a week. So it was, it was pretty isolated, you know. And yet... The situation was welcoming, and when I got there, I felt um, I felt I felt comfortable. I felt comfortable enough with the situation to begin to start exploring and trusting what it was like living in this new land, what that would be like. And the land to me felt incredibly welcoming. Like it felt to me like the land was really delighted that I was there, which was an interesting experience. You know, I've been backpacking lots, and I love nature lots, but I'd never experienced the land receiving me in that kind of a way before. So I was curious what that was about and what, how to relate to that and all the rest of that. So I was living in this tiny little hut. I mean, it, it was so tiny. It was just so sweet. And I was in this spectacular, beautiful area. And I was there for, well, the better part of two years. And because the land was so welcoming and so supportive, it gave me the confidence to relax and to be able to explore practice in ways that I hadn't allowed myself to do in the past. So when I got there, you know, I made a structure where I'd sit and I'd walk and I'd do, I did a lot of bowing practice and I was reading the suttas and reading the vinya and reading, you know, so for me it was like um, keeping it within everything that was known and familiar because I was so unfamiliar and so unknown. And then after a period of time, I began to relax the sense of structure and began to trust more my intuition. And in that situation, I had many kind of wonderful experiences with the nature, where the nature started teaching me, mirroring for me aspects of my own motivation and my own biases and my own views and opinions in a way that was really um, insightful. So one of the things that happened for me when I was there was I had experience with the ants. So, you know, we have ants, all right, so a couple times, you know, maybe an ant will come and look at the crumbs and then disappear. Well, Australia has a totally different experience with ants. It's like there's 10,000 different kinds of ants, and most of them live in Australia. Mm. And the ground, you walk on the ground, and the ground is moving for ants. I mean, it's like we don't know from ants, you know? We just don't know from ants. So I was doing, um, I was doing a, I was doing a, a weird practice, tiger practice. Tiger practice is a practice where you don't lie down and you don't sleep for a stretch. You stay up, you sit up, you don't lie down, and uh, for I don't know, was it going to be a week or ten day practice? So you know, I'm up at weird hours and doing weird things, and your mind starts to, you know, your sensitivity heightens considerably when you're spending so many hours a day practicing, and also when you're not sleeping, normal patterns. And there was an anthill outside the meditation hall, you know, and and so when the anthill was spilling onto the path, and I thought, well, you know, the ant the anthill's spilling onto the path, and that's our path, and so I'll, I'll just gently sweep the bottom of the path, and and then gently encourage the ants to move over. Now, even though I love nature, I was born in L.A. Nobody who was born in the bush would think like that. They just would not think like that. You know, so I got I got my broom and I started sweeping the base of the anthill 
thinking, oh, this is going to be a nice, gentle, loving way to encourage them to move their entire anthill over several feet. (laughs) And the ants had a slightly different experience about this. And so they decided, you know, this is a red alert, you know, attack and destroy. So all, all of the ant people got mobilized and they came charging at me with an attack and destroy mission. And so, all right, so I'm not so thick that I didn't realize at that point that I was an error in my thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So I realized, well, actually, well, maybe it isn't up for me to decide this is their place or not their place or this is our path or not. Who is it for me to decide? So I went and I put the broom down and the the broom on the wall of the cellar was like as far away as I am from there. And then, equally naive, I walk back into the charging anthill with the thought that I'll just give them some metta, some loving kindness, <laughs> some reiki, you know? I mean, it, I, people are extraordinary. But what happened was I walked back into this charging anthill and not a single ant bit me, Ooh. all right? And then I realized what I'd done after all of this, and I thought, my goodness, you know? I mean, aside from my own stupidity, the ants could tell the difference between my intention, which was actually distressing to them, and my intention, which was non-harming. They got it. And I went, wow. An ant knows the difference between the intention to harm and the intention not to harm. And then I was on my kuti. So my kuti was this little kuti, and I had this Cadillac walking path in front of my kuti, which was, oh, it was just divine. It was soft white sand. It was this beautiful, spectacular view, and it was like 50 feet longer. I mean, it was just really long, really exquisite, lovely, luscious, soft sand. And I would walk back and forth on my walking path, you know, morning, noon, and night. And that was my path. You know, I knew it was my path, it was my path. And sometimes I'd walk with my eyes closed and sometimes I'd walk with my eyes open and it's my path. Well, just connecting my path was another path and that path went down to the eating hall and to the kitchen and to the sala and all the rest of that. And alongside that path was a bull ant's nest. Now, bull ants, of all of the ants in, in Australia, bull ants are worth knowing about. They're about that long, and they've got these kind of pitchforks for prongs that they inject this kind of poison into your system. And if you get bit by a bull ant, it's two weeks of intensely unpleasant sensation. It swells up to the size of a golf ball, half a golf ball, for the first week, and the second week it itches like it's nobody's business. So it doesn't take very long to work out which ones are the bull ants. And the bull ants are phenomenally territorial. I mean, unimaginably so. And so it doesn't matter if you're four feet or five feet or six feet or eight feet tall. They will fight you. You know, they will defend their territory. So it didn't take too long, and I worked out that there was a bull ant's nest, and I needed to watch out for them because that was their path. All right? But I would be walking on my walking path, and they would make forays onto my walking path because it was only 15 feet away, and they would look out for me because it was my path, all right? This is an ant that actually understands the relationships of boundaries and respect. I never had to worry on that path, and I walked regularly with my eyes closed on that path. There was never a problem because those bull ants got out of my way on my path. So for me, this whole experience woke me up to this uh, kind of a new way of relating to life, which is what happens if we just try and relate to life with respect rather than demanding that someone be worthy of respect. And then not only if we relate to the outside like that, what happens if we bring that to the inside? Now, these created a transformation in me that supported an inquiry that I hadn't yet been able to do, which was the willingness to be with some of these things that had been layered and buried that I didn't actually have access to. And a lot of it had to do with painful feeling. And for me, you know, I had weird kind of conditioning around anger, fear, and sadness. And for reasons which aren't 
uh, it's not even relevant to the story, it was hard for me to allow those into conscious awareness in a way where my system didn't shut down. So what was needed for me was a sense of safety to be able to explore where I didn't feel safe. And what was needed to support that was a sense of not wanting to get free from suffering, but a willingness to watch and be present with what was arising with respect. And the ants were instrumental in helping me shift my motivation to be able to support that inquiry. So what that did was allowed all kinds of layers of memories and feelings and belief systems to surface into awareness. Once they were in awareness, I could work with them. Before I was aware of them, you can't work with them. So meditation is good for supporting things that arise in awareness. But it is not so good with allowing things to become aware if we're not aware of them. Now, one of the things in which this happens is around the whole topic of trauma. So when there is a, uh, a significant kind of event and the system goes into a kind of freeze or a kind of, you know, any of the trauma responses, the kind of mechanisms of the psyche is to not want to know about that. And so unpacking trauma or decompressing around trauma requires skills in addition to one's ability to meditate. And so if one thinks that by sitting, you know, the magic wand is going to emerge and everything is going to get sorted out, then what ends up happening is, is that one has significant gaps in one's own uh, uh, psychology that are not being attended to. But because one's a devoted meditator, one thinks that it should be attended to. <laughs> you know? And so, I mean, I'm sure you have seen this. I certainly have seen I've seen it in myself, and I've lived with other people for the same. You know, it's not that, well, I don't know how hard it is, but it's possible to give an absolutely brilliant Dhamma talk and get off the seat, and there is chaos everywhere one goes, okay? Because there are aspects of one's own life that one hasn't attended to. Even though there can be tremendous clarity about certain aspects of the teaching. So, one of the things that I have developed in my own practice is the ability to look at what I call the footsteps of the yeti. So, do you know what a yeti is? <laughs> yeah? So, yeti is kind of like an invisible snowman, right? Uh, and, what is it? Abominable. Abominable snowman, yeah. So, the abominable snowman is never seen, but you can see their footsteps, right? So ignorance doesn't see itself, but you can actually see the traces of it. And one of the characteristics of of ignorance is suffering. So when we have black boxes, so for example, something happens and there's a totally out-of-control emotional reaction, and you don't know how you got there, all right? So something happens, and there's a totally out-of-proportion emotional reaction in response to it. That's a black box. And you actually don't know what the mechanisms are, right? It takes a lot of skill in order to be able to bring discernment, awareness, interest, and attention into what is actually going on where this kind of stimulus ends up with that kind of overreaction. Yeah? That is not an obvious byproduct of meditation, that comes with bringing inquiry into the things that meditation doesn't necessarily illuminate. And what is needed is the interest to see, all right, so if this is actually creating a response which is suffering, then what we need to do is to address it. So at some point in my practice, it's like, well, you know, I don't actually care if it's transcendent suffering or personal suffering or transpersonal suffering or impersonal suffering. It's like, if it's suffering, it's suffering, and I'm interested in in meeting it and receiving it and seeing what I can do to understand it and resolve it. 
So part of it had to do with my view of moving out of, I'm out of here and I just want to get off the wheel. Part of it had to do with the recognition that in my own life there needed to be a different kind of orientation towards what was arising. So the orientation towards welcome and respect. Part of it had to do with developing skills, with learning how to locate these black boxes to see the traces of suffering when I wasn't aware of what was arising and develop different skills to bring to that. And part of that was, after a while, the community of sisters did develop quite a lot more resources in our ability to support and hold each other in these kind of inquiry processes which 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 then supported each other. So, you know, when I first came to the monastery in, in 1989, the level of dysfunction was quite high within the sisters, and it actually took quite a long time in order for the sisters to develop uh, skill and capacity to work with some of the things that were, were arising for us. But the sisters were are amazing. I mean, sisters are amazing. And after a number of years, the capacity to develop those skills and resources as well as the amount of individuals that were doing individual work and the amount of group work that we did then supported a collective ability to kind of hold the space that would allow these things to arise. So, for example, when you're dealing with something that is a trauma response, it needs an enormous amount of safety. And even if every single one of the sisters in the group is absolutely clear what's going on. If the person for whom it's happening to doesn't have the safety to open up to that territory, it's not skillful to be too um, pointing about what is actually happening. Yeah. So the discernment that's needed as a collective is not only what's happening, but what does the person need in order to open up to that material themselves? These are not natural things that just come from meditation. They come from an inquiry which is actually interested in this territory and observes what happens when this is not attended to. Now for the sisters, my personal sense when this stuff was not attended to was it was pandemonium and chaos. And that as we became more skilled at it, we develop much more resource in being able to support each other in doing our own personal work as well as the collective work. So this fantasy that a monastery is a wonderful place is a fantasy. And what makes it a wonderful place is when the people who are coming to the monastery and committed to living there are committed to doing this kind of work where they're actually interested in bringing the practice into every aspect of their lives and looking at this stuff, which is very painful to look at. And for myself, you know, I spent, well, the better part of 20 years trying to use meditation in order to not look at it, even though I didn't realize that that's what I was doing, you know. And then when I was cornered and I realized I couldn't actually get out of it, you know, there was no magic wand, I couldn't make it disappear, There was nothing that I could do other than to actually face it. When I tried every single thing I could to get out of it, and I couldn't, then it was only under those circumstances that I was prepared to enter into this stuff. At least some of it. Because it was too painful. I was like, forget that. I ain't going there. But when you don't have a choice, it's like, well, you don't have a choice. So for me, one of the real essential qualities that's needed in a mature meditation community is a real clarity about what the edges of meditation is, what it supports, what it doesn't support, and what other resources are needed in order for a person and a community to grow into wholeness. And wholeness is characterized by a sense of ease and well-being, confidence, and a sense of resting in one's own skin, an appropriate response with the people around, right? So, like, as sisters, we tend to be incredibly perceptive. I mean, like, you can't imagine sometimes how perceptive sisters can be. It's just, it's frightening. (laughs) But it took us decades to learn how to temper our perceptivity with empathy 
so that what we were actually saying to each other was supportive, right? So, you know, all right, and that is not something which immediately comes from meditation. So, you know, the, the, for me there was a sense of, well, um, you know, the great, the great fairy godmother or the great magic wand, you know, there is no fairy godmother and there is no magic wand. But as I got more able to bring skill to my own internal world and also with the people that I was living with, then there was less need for a magic wand and a fairy godmother. You know, the fantasy it didn't it didn't need it didn't it didn't have that strong need. Yeah. But it took a reorientation to get there because there's this longing that if I do this practice then everything is gonna be okay, you know? And everything is gonna get sorted and the result of that is is that I'm not gonna suffer and everyone's gonna love me, you know. And so, you know, I can't remember exactly when it was in the practice when I realized, well, actually, enlightenment is not the end of the path, it's the beginning. And that what happens when one actually practices in this way is that one stops longing for others to love. And what one does is rests more in a place of love itself, as well as very clearly watching that longing as it arises. Because, you know, I've left the sisters, I've left the community in England, a community that I've been a part of for 20 years, and it's, it's impressive, the grief, you know, it's impressive, you know, how impacted that, that I have been by the transition. Even though I have no regrets, it's clear that I'm doing what I need to be doing. But the kind of, what happens to a group of people, you know, they have been my pack, you know? And it's not yet clear who my pack is now. And as a human being, the longing to be in community is very, very strong, you know. So for me, these things have been uh, absolutely essential part of my practice. And it's important for me, uh, or I feel a sense of reassurance when I see communities take them on board, because to me that's an indication of maturity, and it's encouraging. Yeah? So, um, I'll stop here, and we'll shift the focus a little bit for uh, a few questions. And then what I'd like to do towards just before the end is just tell you a few more things about the project and what we're doing over the next few days. Is that all right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So, um, what arises when you hear this reflection? Questions, comments? Yes, please, in the back. Yeah. I'm thinking of, as you talk about the edges of meditation practice, I'm thinking about, I've been involved with many mindfulness teachers in the last few years, and in, in mindfulness and psychotherapy, and the edges are similar, I think, to the edges you're talking about is using these practices with people that have been victims of severe trauma, PTSD, um, abuse victims, and it just seems like, you know, those are the edges where the people that are using these practices out in the world to kind of, in a psychotherapeutic manner, are, are struggling to um, find what I think you found on the inside in the community. I, I don't know if I'm being very articulate or clear about it, but it, it, um, the, the edges are, are the same edge. I mean, you, obviously, if somebody, uh, I don't want to get too much on this, but if somebody is, is uh, a victim of severe PTSD or other kinds of trauma, just sitting is not enough. And so, where do you where do you go beyond the edges? You know, how do you create a an environment that's comfortable and safe enough and supportive enough that people can begin to um, utilize their awareness to be able to look at possibly what they've experienced and begin to 
have a different sense of what they, how they were traumatized and maybe where they can go with it. So. And rambling, and hoping you're getting a sense. Of I do have, I do have a sense, and I think that that's right. But my own personal, my own personal journey has led me to a, a, a deep appreciation of the psychological territory, and how having a sophisticated understanding of that is actually something that's essential in a spiritual community and a spiritual practice. And so there are lots of times with people where I don't encourage them to do formal practice because it's not conducive for them. And there's times for myself where I take the pressure off of me in that way as well, because there's other things happening. So it's nice to have the sense that the you know the trauma and the PTSD and all of that stuff is is in an out there kind of population. My experience is, is that actually is not the case. It's all of us. We've all got that stuff, and so you know to various different levels and degrees. And so what's needed is 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 understanding how this works and how to use meditation and how to not meditate and use other things when it's helpful. Yeah. Yes, please. Uh, when you said there's not a magic wand, that, that this isn't a magic wand, I thought, well, there must be another one. <laughs> but actually, um, I, I noticed that there's a lot of focus in the West on meditation being the answer to a lot of things. Um, but it's it's only one of the eightfold and I'm wondering if, if you could speak to um, mobilizing the other seven skillful means as, you know, as, I mean, I think some of that might have something to shed light on some of the things you've mentioned and Well, I mean, again, these are big topics and it's not going to be able to be possible to do them really much justice in just a few minutes. But, you know, one of the assumptions that meditation is based on is, is, is that one comes to meditation with a cohesive sense of self, not in the Buddhist sense, but in the psychological sense, right? I have never met anybody who comes to meditation with a cohesive sense of self, okay? So the kind of basic assumptions of what we're dealing with and the assumptions of what was meant to have been happening, they're not the same. So part of what's needed is to begin to look at not just traumas, but also resources to be able to work with foundations and bring that cohesive sense of self in a healthy psychological sense into the practice as well as look at the sense of self in the transpersonal way to see that there isn't anything solid and cohesive there that's actually keeping the person together. But what what my experience has been in this in this journey is is that they both need to happen. It's not like you can just do one and then it naturally translates to the other. They both need to happen, and what is needed is the skill to recognize which bit of this needs more attention and how to do that. Okay? Yes, please. <clears throat> Last weekend I was at uh, Esalen with two people who specialize in trauma treatment. Mm-hmm. And um, part of what was very interesting is how much of, of the work that they were doing was really centered around mindfulness of the body in the body and mindfulness of breath and mindful movement and then the exploration of movements that are frozen. Mm-hmm. So it was really, and I've actually been working with a trauma therapist myself, and so it's been interesting to take an inquiry from kind of um, interoception, proprioception, which I think meditation does really well to somebody who's able to really read the, the subtle movements That's right. and then amplify those movements. And it's just remarkable to have those things that are right. frozen, incomplete movements have a chance to right. be guided to fuller expression. So in a contemporary psychology and in you know in the West and in California there are tremendous kind of resources that are available. And I don't think they should be ignored. In fact I think that they should be very they should be interested in looking into what these things have to offer. Yeah. One further thing I'm part yeah. of a, a meditation group called Ridwan and um, the person who sort of started that group has gotten clearer and clearer that what is blocking people from awakening is trauma layers mm-hmm. and it's really sending lots of people back in through 
to work on those frozen places. Right, yeah. So it's interesting to have you come today with that. Right, right, yeah. I would like to continue this, but what I'd like to do, if it's okay, is just change the topic a bit and just tell you for three minutes what about this project is and what's happening in the next few days, okay? So in July of this year, I came to back to the States after being in England for the better part of the last 20 years. And I'm living in Colorado Springs, and I'd like to move to California. And the project that I'm part of is based on three kind of basic premises. One is, is, is that it's good to be a nun, right? Nuns are good. <laughs> the second one is, is, is that the relationship with the lay community is fundamental mm-hmm. and interdependent. Mm-hmm. And the third one is, is that when you have committed your life to non-harming, it doesn't make any sense to do things that you know are harmful. And these three things are the kind of basis of the project that I'm part of and basis of what it is that I want to do. Now, as an alms mendicant, in order to come to California, again, I don't have a magic wand. You know, It's going to depend on people coming together and say, we would like you to be here. And we understand what your practical needs are. And we understand that you have some organizational needs. And we would like to help support you with that. Okay? On a bigger topic, what I see is needed. I have come from one of the most extraordinary traditions that I know about. And I could spend weeks, months, years talking about the blessings of this tradition. Yeah? But I also see that it has some embedded cultural biases that it's not able to deal with or look at or reflect on or change around. And so what I see is is that a new model is needed, not just because in addition to some of these cultural biases, there's also a sense that, well, the monastics are the ones who've got the spiritual authority and the lay people don't, all right? And maybe in Asia there is a way in which that was suitable, But in the West, when you've got people who've been practicing for 20 or 30 years and people who are meditation teachers in their own right, it doesn't make sense to have that absolutely categorically black and white. So there's a few places that I am clear about that actually need massaging. But I don't have it in my head what this new model looks like. And I think, in fact, it's a blessing that I don't. Because what I think is needed is, is that the new model needs to be collaboratively envisioned. Mm-hmm. That it actually starts from the ground as a new model rather than one person coming up with a new model. So tomorrow night is an opportunity to talk about the vision of awakening truth and some of the practical details and to begin the opening up the topic of what would a collaborative envisioning of this look like. And then a Saturday is a day long. We will talk about interdependence. Yeah. In the East Bay on the 27th, uh, I'm doing a day long with Nushim, Aikida Nash, at the East Bay Meditation Center. And that is a, a talking about this in a kind of interactive way. So the day long is going to be a meditation day as well as a, a kind of looking at what's beyond patriarchy as a way of starting this process and seeing what happens. We'll leave a couple flyers here for that. You're welcome. Obviously, you'd be very welcome. It's not full yet. Yeah. And then also, there's a retreat that I'm teaching in Colorado, uh, a six-day retreat on the four foundations of mindfulness. If if um, getting to Colorado is within your grasp and coming for a six-day retreat is something that you can manage. But, um, so... I wanted to bring these things up because just so that you have a sense of what I'm what I'm wanting to do, and uh, and so that you know these next venues of of where these topics will be discussed and how. I wish we had more time tonight, but it looks like we're finished. Yeah, let's say thirty. Yeah, yeah. So, um, can I just see if there's any questions about? Um, the project or what's happening tomorrow or Sunday? Is your project connected with the San, the San Francisco um, group that the other... Sarah Maloka? Yeah. Is it connected with that? No, it's not. Okay, it's a separate. It's a separate project. Thank you. Yeah. 
Yes, please. The day long on Saturday, um, uh, can it be attended uh, part of it, or should it be the whole day? Um, I always have two responses to this, yes and no. (laughs) I think if people are going to attend part of it, the best part of it to attend is the first part. It's harder to come in in the middle. Yeah. Obviously, it's more settling for the group if people can be there the whole day. You know, I don't. I think if you came in in the morning, that would be okay. Can you make an announcement about Donna? Please, yeah. And also, just also to know with the Saturday day long, is is that the families are going to join us at three thirty? Yeah. So. So um, we are interconnected. The monastic community supports us with teachings and uh, really this this urging to reflect. And we too support the monastic community, and in this case, Ajahn Santi, in many different ways. I think we'll learn some more about ways that we can support her as the weekend goes on. But one of the ways that you can is to contribute to Awakening Truth, which is her project. And um, the way to do that is to write a check to Vipassana Santa Cruz and just make sure you write a note on it to say what it is for, and that will go directly to Awakening Truth. And so I hope that there is great generosity in your heart and appreciation for the teachings and for tonight as well as the other times. Cash in the teacher's basket would do the same. Okay. Tonight. Yes, thank you. So thank you for your interest and your attention and I hope that you're able to practice in a way where the peace and freedom that you experience is something that translates into every aspect of your life. I'll just stay behind for a few more minutes if people want to come up and ask more questions. Otherwise, we'll just feel like Hopefully, I'll see more of you Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.